today I've got another couple episodes for you from my new Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories podcast, featuring two more tales from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold, my all-time bestseller. Love what you hear? Then subscribe at once to Sarah Henlicky Wilson wherever you get your podcasts. And now on with the bonus episodes. Welcome to Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories, for people who need good fiction and good theology at the same time. I'm Sarah. Though I've identified C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and Dante's Divine Comedy as the main sources of afterlife fiction, which in their own way inspired my pearly gates, the fact is that there's another, more obvious, but much less elevated source, jokes. I mean the St. Peter at the Pearly Gates type jokes, which in my 20th century childhood usually featured lawyers, popes, and Polish people. There's a related specimen in the form of the New Yorker cartoon where, once again, a heavenly gate is presided over by St. Peter. Needless to say, you turn to these jokes and cartoons for humor, not good theology. For ages, it never even occurred to me to ask where exactly the inspiration for this humor came from. But then, somewhere along the line, I got interested in the book of Revelation. Maybe it was due to the sudden excitement over a series of novels that sold extremely well and got called Christian fiction, though I might beg to differ. Anyway, it suddenly seemed important to understand the book of Revelation on its own terms, and when I went to the effort of doing so, I fell in love with it. If your only acquaintance with Revelation is secondhand through panic-inducing cultural byproducts, let me just say you're missing out. You do need some guidance to hear Revelation aright, but it's totally worth it. That's a whole separate topic. The point here is that, entirely to my surprise, I discovered that the St. Peter at the Pearly Gates joke comes from, in fact, Revelation, or from a few inferences from Revelation. Let me explain. In chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the book, John the visionary sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. He notes a few details about it, among others that it is foursquare with a wall all around, but there are twelve gates set in the wall, three on each side. The gates are named for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, and the foundation of each gate is labeled with the name of each of the twelve apostles and assigned a precious stone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include a list of the twelve disciples or apostles, so over the centuries, a tradition developed of matching up the list of the twelve apostles with the twelve gates and their stones. Peter always comes first on these lists, and given his prominence among the apostles, not to mention Jesus' statement regarding Peter and the keys of the kingdom, the image of Peter alone presiding over one pearly gate came to occupy the popular imagination. But the thing of it is, there are twelve gates, not just one. And each apostle gets a gate, not Peter only. Most important of all, the book of Revelation tells us these gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. I can't overstate the surprise I felt on reading that for the first time. Even growing up with a grace-centered theology, I just assumed that the gates to the heavenly city would be ferociously guarded and difficult to pass through. I never imagined heaven's bold confidence to the point of being positively leaky, having 12 gates, always open, forever standing in the bright light of God. This is not a vision to intimidate, but to entice. Hence, today's story, Too Many Gates. 
What if this discovery of 12 gates instead of one came not as good news, but as bad? This story explores that dark possibility. Too Many Gates A woman found herself at the pearly gates, with hints of the golden city winking from within, shining radiantly without sun or moon. It was exactly as she had hoped. She approached one of the gates built upon a foundation of jasper, and addressed herself to the apostle. The jasper is so very beautiful, she said. It is clearly the ideal foundation for this gate of pearl. Nothing else would do. On the contrary, said the apostle, eleven other precious stones have done just as well. Look, and you will see the others on this side, sapphire and agate. If you were to walk all the way around, you would see also emeralds, onyx, and carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, and topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. At this, the woman took note of her surroundings for the first time. Indeed, there was not only one pearly gate, there were many pearly gates, twelve to be precise. Not one of them had a door. All the gates stood open, and through them thousands upon thousands were streaming. She looked back and saw many more eagerly waiting to press through and enter the heavenly city. I thought there was but one gate, she said. There are twelve, replied the apostle. So many, continued the woman, without doors, anyone might come in. Yes? But, but, stuttered the woman. She stopped, troubled. You may come in too, said the apostle. Twelve gates, repeated the woman. She stepped a few paces back from the jasper foundation and glanced to the side, toward the sapphire and agate gates, where other apostles were welcoming in the masses. They are all the same, said the apostle. It matters not by which one you enter. Oh, as to that, said the woman dismissively, it's not a question of which gate is better or worse, only that there are so many, and always open. It seems so, to be frank, promiscuous. Prodigal, suggested the apostle. Exactly, cried the woman, and prodigal means badly behaved, irresponsible, spendthrift. Here it means instead lavish, extravagant, and bounteous. I just wouldn't have thought it of heaven, the woman frowned. No filter, no screen, anyone might come in. When will you? The woman shook her head. I'm just not sure about this, she said. It wasn't what I was expecting. Maybe I have come to the wrong place. This is the place, I assure you. I'm afraid I can't take your word for it. I don't know you. How can I trust you? What are your credentials? The apostle laughed. I can offer nothing that would convince you, he said. Only the fact that I am here. But twelve gates! standing open at all times. Why, anyone might just march up and claim to be an apostle, and claim that this is heaven. I have my doubts. Excuse me, I hope you won't take offense, but I really must examine the other options before I continue any further. Without another word, the woman turned and walked away, and the apostle quickly lost sight of her. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to Too Many Gates from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold. If you'd like a paper copy to hold in your hands, visit thornbushpress.com or the online retailer of your choice. You can also listen to all the stories right now by getting the audiobook from the same sources. Support my efforts to create good fiction and good theology at the same time on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson. But above all, please tell a friend about the show. to Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories, for people who need good fiction and good theology at the same time. I'm Sarah. Back in Pearly Gates episode number five, with the story Noli Me Tangere, I talked about the necessity of bodiliness in stories about the life to come, and how even spiritual things are not properly grasped without material instantiation. You can hear it even in the metaphors, I just said you can't grasp spiritual things without material instantiation, but how could you grasp something spiritual under any circumstances? In our culture, at least, we are still haunted by the dream, or perhaps the nightmare, of truth and reality and beauty and, yes, spirituality beyond the grasp of the heavy, clunky, weighty material. Even those of us who look to a bodily risen Lord as the greatest truth, reality, and beauty, as the centerpiece of our spirituality. One of the reasons we feel a kind of distrust toward the material and the bodily is that we know it too well, and we know its impermanence. Organic creatures age, bleed, die, and rot. Inorganic things weather, wear away, rust, and dissolve. Eternity and materiality are obvious enemies. If you want the former, you have to break free of the latter. Or, possibly, the material needs to be taken into a reality it has not yet encountered, something outside the scope of its present possibilities. When we are talking about the resurrection of the dead, the life to come, or the end of all things, which really means a new beginning, that's what we're talking about. Not escape from the material, but a new kind of existence for the material. Of course, by definition, we can't know much about that. And even if we were told, it wouldn't really add up. It is outside the scope of our possibilities. So we get hints and hopes, but not much more. Go ahead and reread 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see what I mean. Not that the lack of data has prevented speculation. In its proper place, speculation is a faithful exercise of the imagination. And as far as I'm concerned, the prize for faithful speculation about materiality on the other side of eternity is St. Augustine. Way back when, in the dying days of the Western Roman Empire, when his compatriots started murmuring that maybe the barbarians were winning because Christianity was making the old Roman gods mad, Augustine wrote his massive defense of the faith, the city of God. Against its many, many, many apologetic functions was a defense of Christian hope in the resurrection of the dead, despite all kinds of practical problems with that hope. Like, will all your hair and fingernails get resurrected with you too? Augustine covers a lot of ground, and I won't go into it all. But he does take up a couple of thoughts pertinent to today's story from Pearly Gates. 
In City of God, Book 22, Chapter 13, he wonders if children who died in the womb, such as miscarriages, abortions, or stillbirths, will also take part in the resurrection. Augustine admits he doesn't know for sure, but immediately adds, if they count among the dead, why shouldn't they rise with the dead? Dead is dead, no matter what age or size you were when you died. The power lies with God, not with the dead body. The only alternative Augustine can think of is that they will be living souls without bodies, but that is less than the faithful hope for. So Augustine inclines toward their bodily resurrection after all. Of course, if that's the case, will their bodies be exactly the same as in their mother's womb? And what would that be like? This leads Augustine into his next thought in chapter 14, which asks whether infants shall rise in that body which they would have had had they grown up. Augustine supposes that babies and small children who died will rise at the size at which they died, but then, quote, shall receive by the marvelous and rapid operation of God that body which time by a slower process would have given them, end quote. You'd hardly want to say, of course, that natural time trumps God's own creative powers here. More to the point, Augustine thinks in terms of the desired perfection of the human body. And the fact is, all tiny human bodies, if all goes as God desires, will grow and continue to grow until they reach adulthood. It is a perfection promised that some don't get in this life, so in the life to come, what was denied them will be theirs. Augustine puts it like this, In this seminal principle of every substance, there seems to be, as it were, the beginning of everything which does not yet exist, or rather does not appear, but which, in the process of time, will come into being, or rather into sight. In this, therefore, the child who is to be tall or short is already tall or short. This is speculation for sure, but it is faithful speculation. What I particularly like about it is that Augustine doesn't make creation and redemption into opposite poles or enemies of each other. The blessed future is definitely not escaping materiality, but receiving the full gifts offered to physical beings in this life. And then some, of course, because it is a risen body. You get more, but not less. Which brings us to today's story, Do Not Hinder my own speculative thoughts on this very question, inspired in part by Paul's comparison of the earthly body to a seed that has yet to sprout and grow. Do not hinder them. The Lord noticed a gaggle of children outside the gates. They were on their knees, scrabbling in the dirt, gathering something up, putting what they found in their pockets, or clutching it tightly in their hands. Children, said the Lord, what are you finding? The children turned, rose, and raced over to the Lord. They seized his hands, tugged at his robe, hugged his legs, sat on his feet. The tallest child spoke for them all. Look, she said, holding up a handful of her treasures to him. Acorns! Heaps of them, cried another smaller child. Maybe even seventy-two! No, more than that, there's at least a hundred and fifty-three, shouted an even smaller child. The Lord examined their grubby, uplifted hands. These, he said, 
are very special acorns. They never had a chance to grow in the first life, but their time has come. It was very good of you to gather them in. The children beamed. Follow me, he said, and he led them through a gate of pearl into the golden city. Some way in, he stopped at the edge of a pasture, full of grass and flowers, but no trees. Plant them here, he said. The children dug into the pliant earth with their thick little fingers, and in each hole they poked an acorn. Lovingly, they covered each acorn over with earth, as if tucking a well-loved teddy bear into bed. Will you water them? asked the Lord. The children rushed off to the river, bright as crystal. They cupped their hands and filled them up and tiptoed back, careful not to lose a single drop, and poured the water over the planted acorns. Now we shall see, said the Lord. The children clustered around him and waited. In hardly any time at all, a sprout poked out of each little grave. The sprout split at the top into two leaves, then four, then a whole wreath of them. From the midst of each wreath, a spray of flowers burst free in dazzling colors, and just as quickly the petals dropped away as the fruit formed in its place. Each fruit grew to ridiculous, enormous, impossible size, still upheld by the spindly little sprout, and each was wrapped in a pod that was in turn modestly shielded by a papery husk. Then all at once, with a sound like bells tinkling, the seed pods cracked and split open. Each child rushed forward and caught in its small arms a baby. Look what mine grew, called one to another. They compared weight and length and hair and noses. The Lord laid his hands upon each one, and then he charged the children to carry the babies further into the city. There are those who have waited long to see their faces, he said. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Do Not Hinder from Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold. If you'd like a paper copy to hold in your hands, visit thornbushpress.com or the online retailer of your choice. You can also listen to all the stories right now by getting the audiobook from the same sources. Support my efforts to create good fiction and good theology at the same time on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson. But above all, please tell a friend about the show.